we address now the eternal, living, powerful Word of the Almighty God. And for a couple of more studies, we will continue to look at this story of this real man in history whose name is Job. Our studies of the book of Job. I love ending it where it ends in a couple of weeks. That great crescendo when God finally speaks. And I'm just anticipating us listening as though he just spoke to us today out of this great book. And may he speak at this part of our study found at Job chapter 36. And we will be considering a portion that leads us, at least by way of passing mention, though not looking at every verse, all the way to chapter 38 in verse 1. But Job chapter 36 is where we will study the story of Job this morning. A message entitled, In Back of the Storm. Just northwest of Atlanta is an unincorporated area of Cobb County, Georgia. And it might never have made its place on the map were it not for one of its very famous residents. Cobb County is the home, I guess I should say the headquarters, of the Weather Channel. Twenty-nine years ago, John Coleman and Frank Batten launched the station. And I can tell you that at that time, just about anyone else, especially in the field of broadcast media, thought that these two men were absolutely crazy. The common question was, How in the world can you sustain interest by talking about the weather 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Ever since John and Frank, ever since those questions that were raised, we find them laughing all the way to the bank. The Weather Channel. 24-7. You know, I'm old enough now to remember the early days of weather reporting. And I just used to love it when those cut-out shapes, you know, that they would stick on a map of the sun or the clouds, or sometimes they would paste up the temperature numbers. I especially liked it when one or two of those things actually fell off to the floor during the uh, two-minute broadcast. Back in Jersey or as some of you say, back in Joysey, where I used to live, I remember there was this already aging hardware store, and over its entrance was this big round thermometer. Not a clock, but a thermometer. And the faded wording around the circumference of that thermometer, there at the top it said this, Don't like the weather with a question mark. And then on the bottom of the thermometer, one word, and it simply said, wait. Don't like the weather? Wait. What is it saying, of course? The weather changes. There's a passing line in one of Mark Twain's biographies that recounts how one Sunday, as people 
were about to make their way out of church, the heavens opened with a tremendous downpour of rain. And a deacon standing at the door asked Twain, Do you think it will stop? Twain plunged into the deluge and was heard to yell back at the deacon and the rest of the cowardly congregation. It always does. It's good to know, isn't it? That it won't rain always. That storms may come, but storms also go. Even the storms of life, like spiritual testings, physical challenges, afflictions, even sorrows come, but they also go. The sun sooner or later shines again. I was noting this week that the Bible has a lot of weather stories in it. From the early mist in the Garden of Eden to Noah's universal flood to Job's children all wiped out as victims of a terrifying tornado. Even early meteorology The predicting of weather is mentioned by Jesus, the New Testament, and of course, even or always with a spiritual application. The Pharisees and Sadducees challenged Jesus one day, saying this to him, show us a sign from heaven. And it's interesting how Jesus responded. I think many commentators miss what I I think might have been even a little bit tongue-in-cheek on Jesus' part. They said, show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus began talking about the weather. How's that for a sign from heaven? He, Jesus, replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. Or in the morning, you will say... Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. And then Jesus says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Folks, today you can find plenty of people more interested in tomorrow's forecast than where they will spend eternity. And I think sometimes to our shame, isn't it also true that we professing Christians find it a whole lot easier to talk about the weather than we do the gathering storm of God's coming judgment And taking the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Just about a year or so ago, the Weather Channel introduced a recurring segment, which really is quite interesting. I've watched them. It is called, When Weather Changed History. When Weather Changed History. The premise is that weather itself, weather itself, has altered the course of human events and shape the lives of even generations of people. Nevertheless, in an age of computer graphics, 
satellite imagery, more and more accurate 10-day forecasts. Isn't it interesting we've yet to hear Jim Cantore or Al Roker say something like this as they begin their forecast? Well, folks, let's take a look at what God has in store for us in this week's forecast. And yet the Bible is abundantly clear that it is God who directs even the weather. You know, we uh, biblically informed people ought to be careful, I suppose, especially those of us that live here in southwest Florida in the middle of July. We ought to be careful that we complain a little too much about the weather because the Bible teaches that it is our creator who is in the back of every storm. And I would assume also the author of humidity. Reminding us, too, that just as the rain falls upon the earth and produces vegetation, God says, so does his word come down from above and accomplishes its purposes as well. And if you were to ask Job whether the weather changes the course of even one person's history, he would tell you that while he grieved the loss of loved ones in an horrific weather event, or that other day when the fierce lightning, we read, literally burned up his flock and his cattle and killed all his hired servants. But at this point in time, or at least when we have the opportunity to talk to Job ourselves, he will also tell you that it was in the midst of another roaring tornado, what the Bible calls the whirlwind, in which he finally hears the voice of God. God speaking out of the storm. In one of our earlier studies, we summarized the various counsels of Job's three friends. And we observed there their limited view of God's sovereignty, which only, after all, seemed to exacerbate Job's sufferings. You remember that Job cried when they were done their speeches. Miserable comforters are you all. But here in the ongoing journal of Job, at this point where I've had you turn, we are introduced, we meet a fourth friend. And his name is Elihu. He is years younger than the former counselors of Job. So he remained respectfully silent, quiet, believing that the older men, of course, would have greater wisdom. Now, look back for just a moment there to chapter 32, uh, verses 4 through 10. Here's what it says of Elihu, beginning at verse 4, chapter 32 and verse 4. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they, the others, were years older than he. 
And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, you are old, therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. The abundant in years may not be wise. How's that for a text of a mostly retired congregation in southwest Florida? I am no fool and will not preach it at length. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So I say, says young Elihu, listen to me. I too will tell what I think. Now let me say, I think of Elihu and... I remember how in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul told a young Timothy that in the ordained preaching of the word and in his leadership as a pastor, he should not allow any man, even an older man, to despise his youth. We older folks should not think That we always know better, frankly, than some of our young people, who at times just may be speaking on God's behalf. By the way, I'd like to make a prediction about the next generation of believers ministering even in a church like ours in days to come. I'll tell you a certain reality I truly believe. You can sport a tattoo and you can spike your hair and you just may be part of the next generation, man or woman of God, who because you came as you were and were not judged by God because of your outward appearance, you came, as the song says, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Be careful, old folks, how you receive the young folks that God is working in. Well, at the end of Job's story, it says that God was particularly displeased, you remember, but with only three of the four friends. Elihu's message contained enough truth about God, that God himself did not require even a sacrifice on his behalf. In fact, what we will see in Elihu's discourse is that God uses really his sermon as a prelude to what God himself will eventually say to Job, beginning at chapter 38 and verse 1. Imagine this. God uses a young person to pave the way in Job's heart so that God himself can speak. This young theologian, Elihu, says a lot of right things about God. 
But may I suggest that the best part of his message is when he declares to Job that it is God in back of the storm. As if to say, Job, just as your creator makes the weather that is, so your creator redeemer is at work in your life. God is in back of the storm. At the close of Elihu's sermon, we read, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Well, let's look at a little of Elihu's weather forecast, shall we? Beginning at chapter 36, chapter 36, and I'm going to have you come down uh, to verse 26. Chapter 36, verse 26. Let me just read a while. Follow along carefully. Behold, God is exalted, says Elihu, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. And then he's going to tell us in verse 27, God makes rain. And here's how he does it. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist which the clouds pour down, they drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges peoples, he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with a lightning and commands it to strike the mark. I wonder if you ever knew that about every streak of lightning. A personal creator, God, says this is where it will strike. Look at verse 33. Its noise declares his presence. Some of you folks ought to stay around here in southwest Florida a little time after Easter. We get some great thunder and lightning. And I just love a verse like this that that the next time I I jump because of that loud clap of thunder, I'll be reminded of Elihu's sermon who said, really in that thunder is the very voice of God. Wow. Now, Look at the dumb cows. Verse 33. They're out there in the field. And it says, its noise declares his presence. The cattle also concerning what is coming up. Now, I do try to make my sermons to be helpful and practical at all times. So may I say this? You golfers, you need to listen to me. A dumb cow never goes under a tree for shelter in a lightning storm. And if it is in the open field, you know what they do? They get down in a ball on the ground. Enough said? All right. Now let's look at the extended forecast. It continues in chapter 37. Chapter 37 at verse 1. 
Elihu's still giving a weather report. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and is lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Now this is for you snowbirds. Verse 6, just for you snowbirds. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth and to the downpour and the rain. Be strong. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. Then the beast goes into its lair and remains in its den. Out of the south comes the storm. And out of the north, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made. And the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture, he loathes the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud with his lightning. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. And in this verse 13, this extraordinary verse 13, this is something The Weather Channel knows nothing about. Are you ready? This is the purpose of weather. Verse 13. Whether for correction or for his world or for his loving kindness, like when it doesn't rain on your parade, he causes it to happen. Now, I know we're reading Hebrew poetry. This is some of the most exquisite Hebrew poetry in all the Old Testament. Elihu, the theologian, dash weatherman, is using that which is so very known to us and so very visible to us and at times in the big storms, even so frightening to us. And he says... God speaks in a similar way and for the same purposes in the storms of life which his redeemed must weather. I don't want you to miss this, dear ones, especially if you're in the midst of a personal storm right now. Let me state the main premise again. God is in back of the storm. And right there in verse 13... Let's review again some of the possibilities. It says it may be this storm, figuratively, spiritual storm, it may be for your correction. That's what the text says. Or what you are going through may in fact be for someone else. Elihu says God directs the weather. For his world and the storm in your life, I wonder if you've ever paused to think that what you're going through may not totally just be about you. 
It may be that the comfort with which you experience the Lord's nearness in the storm will be the same comfort that you are able then to give to others going through similar experiences. Does that sound biblical? It may be for someone else. Thirdly, it may be his loving kindness. I know, I know, I know. Sometimes the way God dispenses his mercies in our lives (laughs) comes in ways we would never choose. What C.S. Lewis called a severe mercy. Sometimes the storms come just so we may receive even more of the mercy and grace of God in which there is so much to ever rejoice. But I think the important part of verse 13 is the direct statement, it is he who causes it to happen. So, Job, why are you experiencing this storm in your life? Or we might say, for which of the three reasons Is it for Job's correction? Is it for someone else's benefit? Is this God's way of showing Job even greater mercies at the end of his life than at the present moment? It is certainly God causing it. For which of these three reasons does Job suffer? May I suggest the answer? It is all three. It is all three. Did you know that God can do more than one thing at a time when he's working in your life? Job is a godly man of integrity. We've established that. But he is not a sinless man. And correction will always be part of our experience until we get home. God is faithful to purify us further, but almost always uses the storms of life to do it. Job suffered, did he, for others? Was it for the world, as the text says? Well, Job's story and the lessons that he learned, of course, are for us. Generation after generation find their comfort, do they not, in the experience of Job. I heard a testimony this very week from one of our people. They suffered a a bad thing this week. And it might have been bad enough if that was all they could see. But because we've been together in this series on Job, this person reasoned right in the midst of their storm that at least the roof hadn't blown off the house and the children were still alive and there was still a little loose change in the bank. In other words, yeah, I didn't choose for this to happen. But certainly what happened is not as bad a thing as Job had to endure. And probably not, because we can learn the lessons of Job, if we will, rather than have to experience the depths of the agony that Job experienced. So does he suffer for the world when God sends the storm? Yes. Know this, dear child of God. I've said this many times. Every hard thing in your life, every hard thing in your life, and especially those fierce storms that come, come from the hand 
of the almighty, sovereign Lord. But those hands are nail-scarred. For God is not only sovereign and does all that pleases Him, He is also good and everlasting in His love. And so everything that touches our lives, including all the hurt, is at the same time a redemptive work. The loving kindness of stretched out, nail-scarred hands. The loving kindness of nail-scarred hands. Hard things leading to more glorious things than we could have ever known any other way than through the storm. Then, then it says, the Lord answered Job out of the tornado, out of the whirlwind. And beloved, he will answer you too. Just hear the voice of Jesus saying, come unto me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, come those of you shipwrecked and storm-tossed, and I will give you rest. It will not rain always. And the sun, the S-O-N, will shine upon your life. When his purpose is fulfilled. And for a very personal application, I suppose. I've prayed for a young pastor, only 32 years of age, living in Dallas, Texas. And I have prayed for him over these past weeks. He is an exceptionally gifted preacher. And his ministry had been growing and especially blessed. Again, only in his 30s and the father of young children. And then, on Thanksgiving Day, gathered around a table with his loved ones, he experienced an incredibly frightening convulsion and was rushed to the hospital. A considerable brain tumor was diagnosed and the surgery, he was told, would be very complicated. And just before entering the hospital, he shared what I want to share with you. The following words he shared with his beloved flock, the family of God. He said to them, the last seven days have been some of the most interesting of my life. I have felt anxiety, fear, sadness, and a deep, unmovable joy simultaneously, and in deeper ways than I have ever felt before. And then he could say, I am grateful for this heightened sense of things. 
Today, at 10.45 a.m., he wrote on that day, I will have a good portion of my right frontal lobe removed. And I head into that surgery with a heart that is filled with gratitude and hope. He said, here are some of the things I am thankful for in no particular order. I am thankful for the thousands of you who have prayed and fasted for my health. It has brought far more tears to Lauren's and my eyes to receive this kind of attention from the church universal than the attention this tumor has had. Then he said, I am thankful for health insurance because I'm guessing they aren't doing, going to do my five-hour surgery for free. Then he says, I am grateful for the men of God in my life, my teachers, who taught me to hold my life cheap and to join with Paul in saying, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I might finish my course and complete the work he gave me to do to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This young man said, I'm nothing. I just have a job. God, keep me faithful on the job and then let me drop and go to the reward. Without this strong view of God's sovereign will, he said, I'm not sure how you don't despair in circumstances like mine. And he said, I'm thankful for my wife, Lauren. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. You know he's quoting Proverbs 31. Her children rise up and call her blessed. And then he says her husband also. And he praises her. And his words to her before surgery. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm and beauty is deceitful. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I'm thankful for my children, Audrey the Beautiful, Reed the Valiant, and Nora the Joyous. Being a daddy to these three is one of the most greatest, the greatest of joys in my life. I am thankful for the privilege of seeing and appreciating all of life. God give us this through the grid of a heightened sense of my own mortality. It's the way Brother Bill prayed for us this morning. Oh God, keep us from being drawn away to the things of the world to forget that ours is an eternal destiny. He says, I'm thankful for brilliant doctors and surgeons who have been given a real gift by our great God and King to repair things as complex as the brain. And then he says, I am thankful for my church. If there is a place that loves Jesus more, takes sanctification as seriously, and wants to see the lost love the great king deeply, I'm unaware of it. I can't help it that he didn't hear about Good Shepherd Church. But he says as a pastor, these last seven years have been a spectacular joy. And then finally he said, more than anything else, I am grateful to my King Eternal, my Lord Immortal, For my God invisible, he alone is God. All glory and honor 
forever to you, O God. I am overwhelmed in these moments by God himself and the assurance of a future inheritance of a kingdom that cannot be shaken where all things are made new. And he signs off with the words, Christ is all. Matt Chandler. And I received word just a day or two ago that Matt has survived the brain surgery. We are told his recovery will be long, the therapy, therapy stringent and demanding, and it remains to be seen if his ability to speak as a preacher will enable him one day to return to the pulpit. But like Job and like so many others who have walked the dark paths of the storm, he has heard the voice of God in the whirlwind. And so out of Matt's suffering, he gets to bring more glory to God than in a thousand of his sermons. Some of you may be in a storm today and it hasn't ended yet. And the sun has yet to break through the clouds. But I invite you to consider his love for you. His love for Job, and his love for Matt, and his love for you, because Christ really is all. God's people said.